Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You say, you also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we pray, uh, just a quick uh, announcement. Uh, The elders received this last week uh, a plea from the Sunny Glen Children's Home. Uh, They had an unexpected expense come up. Uh, major, major issues with their sewage drainage system at the children's home down in the valley and uh, to the tune of about $45,000 to to remedy this this uh, this awful problem that was discovered at the end of or about the middle of March. And they have approached us about contributing to that, our elders, since that is one of the children's home that we make a monthly contribution to, uh, are all for helping us as a church, helping them out with this unforeseen, unexpected expense. So in helping to defray the cost of this drainage system, if you, beyond what you have given today or in the, the coming week or two, would like to contribute to this, if you'll make your check out to MacArthur Park Church of Christ, but in that memo line, put Sunny Glen Children's Home, all of that money will be collected and sent to them so that they can find some remedy to this, this problem they have on their campus. Uh, as Aaron has already prayed, uh, we are in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue that uh, today looking at uh, the use of our words and how we speak, and so we're going to ask God to bless us. Let's bow our heads and join our hearts as we pray for our study. Uh, Father, on behalf of people who live in a world where there is lying and dishonesty, where people are not authentic at times when they are not genuine, And as the people that you have called out to represent your kingdom, not just in all of its beauty, but in all of its truthfulness, we pray that you will, this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the teachings of our Messiah in such a way that we will represent, that we will will represent your kingdom with authenticity and with genuineness and with absolute truthfulness and love beyond measure in this community and around the world. And so we ask, Father, that as we endeavor to be like salt and to be like light in our community, that you will give us strength and insight and opportunity for our words to have impact, a gentle impact, a heavy impact upon the hearts of people that surround us in life. 
And this we pray with all of our heart in the name of Jesus and all the church said. Quick review. When Jesus appeared on the first century scene, he extended the greatest offer any human being would ever get. And that is entrance into the kingdom of God. Why? The kingdom of God is wherever the will of God reigns supreme. And where all of God's creation and all of God's creatures flourish and become what they ought to be. And this is why we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, as we've already said, is an articulate and succinct explanation of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. When Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and later on in the Gospel of Luke when it's the Sermon on the Plain, it is, it is a, a lesson, it is teaching. It is a sermon that describes for us and instructs for us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Life in the kingdom of God is a blessing rich, right side up, inside out kind of life that transform human beings into beautiful, disruptive presences in the world. Jesus says that you and me and you that we are in the kingdom of God becoming salt. Salt people whose quality of life stops decay in its tracks just by showing up. That we become light people whose quality of life causes the darkness to flee, to dispel darkness wherever we go by just showing up. We live in the delightful presence of the great king. Of the great king who was different from every other king. He didn't force us to die in order for Him to live, but He died for us in order for us to live and to delight in Him and to live that abundant life. And so as we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Christians who only technically obey the will of God but do not delight in God do not always turn away the the decay and the darkness in the world and in people's hearts. Most of the time what happens is that they turn away people from the kingdom. And this happens every day all over the world when Christians get it wrong about the kingdom of God. It was the problem of the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. And that's why he says that unless, and he's speaking to all of these people from all over the northern part of Galilee, from Capernaum and all of these different places, he says to them, unless your righteousness surpasses, goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addresses the human condition and, and what it's, the transformed life looks like in the kingdom of God. He says when it comes to anger, it's got to be different. Jesus knows that there are more ways to kill a human than just by murdering. And when it comes to human sexuality, He says that sex is a destructive force in human life if it is treated as a consumer good rather than a covenant good in marriage. And we think, okay, we got past the really hard part of this talk because it was about sex. Today may be just as difficult because it's on how we use our words. Question, would you say that trust is up or down in our culture? 
You know, one of the reasons, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, it was said, and this is such a weird illustration, I know, but you'll get it in a second. We were thinking about the pews, as you know, and the replacing of, you know, these 50-year-old pews that we had. And it, it, the, the rule of thumb used to be 24 inches per person, or maybe it was 18 inches. And now it is expanded to more like 28 to 30 inches per person. And part of that has to do with the fact that we're not as skinny as we used to be. But the other is that we're really uncomfortable sitting next to people. And them touching us and us touching them. We've got to have some space. And the reason for that is trust. Trust. I can remember growing up that we lived in this culture of trust. Where if you said you were going to do something, it was like taking your word to the bank. A handshake. Just saying you would do it. It was a culture of trust. And then later years, there was sort of this, you know, there's a new word in the, the, the Webster Dictionary this year. It was coined by Stephen Colbert about 15, 16, 17 years ago. We became a culture of truthiness. That's sort of truthful, sort of not. And then last year, Kellyanne Conway writes about how in the United States, in the use of our words and writing and in, in, in talking about factual things, there is such a thing as alternative facts. Alternative facts. And even more recently, this terminology, fake news, has come into our culture. Trust is as big an issue in our present culture as is human sexuality. Recently, I was listening to a, a sermon on this, and in the sermon was, uh, was a video that I want to share with you right now, if you look at the screens. John, what are you eating? Okay. You didn't eat anything. Yeah. Okay. John, look at mommy. Anything. Are you telling me the truth? Yeah. You didn't have any snacks? Nope. Let me see. You don't have any snacks. Open wide, let me see. Really? You didn't have any snacks? John, come here. John, can you explain to me why, why the sprinkles are empty? Well, you're not empty. John, look at me. I'm not empty. Did you eat those sprinkles? No, I did not. You know it's not nice to tell stories and to lie, right? Look at Mommy. You're not supposed to lie. Tell me now. Did you eat those sprinkles? No, I did not eat sprinkles. John, hmm? you have sprinkles on your face. Did oh, no, no. I did not eat sprinkles. You see how that kid was backing up in the ink because he knew what was coming next. This. <laughs> There's an old joke that says, when do children learn to lie? And the answer is, when they learn how to talk. You know, the funny thing about people is that we'll even lie about lying. People even lie to me, their preacher. That's a really weird experience. I mean, they know they're lying and you know they're lying, but they're going to do it anyway. To a world that is like ours, drowning in dishonesty, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill 
to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne, or by the earth for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. A couple of things about this text. Humans historically struggle with honesty. Humans historically struggle with honesty. There are lies and deflections of truth all over the Bible. Where did humans begin lying in the Bible? Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, and it went forth and it multiplied and seems to have taken dominion over the planet. Adam, God says to Adam, did you eat of the forbidden tree? Tree! (laughs) Thank you. Did you eat of the forbidden tree? And Adam says, what? The woman that you gave me handed me a piece of fruit. I didn't ask any questions. And then it goes from the father to the son, Cain. More seriously, where's your brother? God asked. Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then there's that story of Isaac that comes a couple of generations later. Isaac says to Jacob, is that you, my son, Esau? And Jacob had dressed himself up like Esau. And he says, yes, father, it's me, Esau. And then the father passes it to the children, Jacob's sons. Jacob wants to know, where's Joseph? And where's that coat of many colors? And those boys who had sold him off into slavery after deciding not to kill him said, here's his robe and he was torn to pieces by a ferocious animal. An animal killed him. Skip over to the New Testament. It says, the little maiden says to Peter, I think I recognize you. You were with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter says, nope. I don't know him. And he did that a couple of times. Later on in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Peter asks the question, did you tell the truth about your contribution? Ananias and Sapphira say, we did. We did. And you know how that story played out. One of the first big steps in becoming a person of honesty is admitting that we as human beings, all of us who live in this flesh, struggle with truth. And not only that, humans can be creative liars. We can be. Many people read this text and decide to never take an oath, as you are sometimes required to do in a court of law or in the military. This is not what Jesus is saying at all. Oaths were a part of the Old Testament world. In Genesis 24, God himself has taken an oath. Abraham saying, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household, as he's speaking to Melchizedek, and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. There were biblical regulations about vows that you find in places like Deuteronomy chapter 23. So what in the world is going on in Matthew chapter 5? A couple of the commentators on Matthew mentioned this issue of kinuyim that was prevalent in the first century. It was the practice of naming an object to swear by by giving degrees of veracity to the oath. It worked this way. The closer the object got to God, the more serious the vow or the oath you were making. 
So if you swore by your head or your hand, your right hand, not all that serious. By the earth, wow, that's pretty big. By heaven, by Jerusalem. As long as you were not swearing by something that was in God's presence, you're okay. I mean, we do the same thing today. When you were a kid, did you ever say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? As adults, we do the same thing. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on, my, on the lives of my children. I was watching a movie the other night. Guy sitting around the table says, I swear on my mother-in-law's life. May she die if I'm, I'm lying. <laughs> we can be so creative when it comes to not telling the truth and making it look like truth and making it look like sober honesty. I have a friend who works with broken marriages, spends a weekend with four to eight couples once a month putting together marriages that emotionally are hemorrhaging. And he, he taught me this thing that he says when he's working with these marriages. He says, um, you know, at the very beginning we ask, do you want to work on this marriage? Are you committed to it? And they say, yes, I'll try. And he goes, you know, when you say, I promise I'll try, that is the lie that we tell ourselves and others to feel good about what we know we're not going to do. Anybody guilty of saying, I'll try? Why all this creativity with dishonesty? Oaths in the time of Jesus were a form of spin and manipulation. To use an oath or to use a vow was to show some desperation, uh, to, to be desperate for another to believe what we want them to believe so they will do what we want them to do. When we do that, we put humans at a disadvantage because we are not allowing them to see the truth. We're not allowing them to see reality. We are withholding reality and the things that they need to know to be able to make a decision, to do something, to think about something. And when we do that, not only does it have uh, an issue with, with, uh, with community and, and, the, and the cities and, the, and the, the, the neighborhoods and the schools and places we work, but lies are just an enormous liability to everything, including us. It is an inherently wrong approach to human beings. I'll give you three. Number one, lies turn a human community into a jungle. Instead of there being community, it becomes a jungle when the expectation is that we will lie. What happens when contracts in business are not honored? What happens when leaders are not trusted or moral influencers like ministers are questioned as frauds? Our spouses continually suspected of infidelity, teachers being doubted of their facts. The community breaks down and it becomes a jungle. Number two, lies objectify human beings. As significantly, significantly as pornography objectifies human beings. Pornography turns a human being into uh, pleasure and many other things. But lies do the same thing. When it comes to lies, humans become commodities to be exploited. Political lies turn human beings into pawns for power plays. Advertising lies can turn humans into cash cows. 
that is an inherently wrong way to approach human beings. And then number three, lies run us eventually into reality. Reality being God. A life couched in dishonesty is eventually discovered. Your word reveals what is in your heart. One of the more sobering passages in Jesus' teaching, Matthew chapter 12, he says, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word. Every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because out of the mouth the heart speaks. A couple of practical things. Remember that you live in the presence of God always, continually, always in the presence of God. This was at the heart of the problem that Jesus is addressing with the olds. People were living in levels of truthfulness. It all depended on how close to God the thing was that I swore by. One of the, the great commentators of our age, a fellow by the name of D.A. Donald Carson, writes in his commentary on Matthew that a sophisticated casuistry, which is a, a, a bad form of, of, of thinking, it's like saying I before E except after C and trying to apply that to calculus. It doesn't fit. So it is a way of thinking judged how binding an oath really was by examining how closely it was related to Yahweh's name. Incredible distinctions proliferated under such an approach. Swearing by heaven and earth was not binding. Nor was swearing by Jerusalem, though swearing toward Jerusalem was. Jesus insists that whatever a man swears by is related to God in some way. And therefore, every oath is implicitly in God's name. He would say, you swear by heaven and you think you can get away from that? Guess what? That's where God is enthroned. You swear by the earth. That's his footstool. You swear by Jerusalem. He is the great king. You swear by something insignificant, like the color of your hair. And he says, God made your hair white or black, not you. He's the one that owns your life. Then he says in verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Why? Every word you speak is in the presence of God. Every word is said in the continuously Always present God. Every word, every promise, every oath is spoken in the presence of God. You know, there's a funny thing about infidelity in a marriage. Though it's not funny at all. The ironic thing is that it very rarely happens in the home. Why? Because in the home is the presence of the spouse. Walk into a room in the cologne or the perfume, the pictures on the wall, the memory of the vows. Infidelity, the majority of the time, happens in places where the unfaithful think that they are away from the presence of the spouse. And what Jesus is saying, when it comes to our words and what we say, 
Every word that comes out of our mouth is spoken in the presence of God. Not, we're not just in the presence of God when we come into this room. We live as disciples of Jesus forever in the presence of God. And that's why, last thing, you have to choose the Father you're going to follow. In John 8, Jesus says to some opponents, some Jews that have shown up to give him a hard time and to question him and to try to diminish his place, to try to to ridicule him in the eyes of the people, he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. Your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. It gets a little bit sobering when we choose not to be truthful with our words and it becomes in our thinking to not be truthful, to lie, to be dishonest, to not be authentic, to not be genuine is to carry out our father's desires if our father is Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. On the other hand, God, Solomon says in Proverbs 6, hates a lying tongue. In Titus chapter 1, Paul describes him to Titus, who's there on the island of Crete, as, as, as God is the one who never does not, is incapable of lying. We choose our Father. We choose our Father. You know, in a minute, we're going to sing an invitation song, and you know what that's all about. It's an an invitation to make the requisite changes in our life in order to live the life of a disciple of Jesus in the ways that Jesus, our Master and our King and our Savior, have described. It is to imitate His life. It is to walk in His steps. And not just on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or when we happen to be in places where there might be other disciples of Jesus that might see us, but it is a life that is inside out. Our heart has been transformed. Our soul is different. Our mind values different things. Our body used for different things. All of those things, what it is that the Christ desires. And when we sing that invitation song, it is... It is an opportunity, it's an invitation to make those changes, either by asking for the church to pray for you or to give your life to the Christ by being baptized and confessing that He is Lord, forgiveness of sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, and beginning a life in which day by day you're being transformed into the image of Jesus. One of the best verses in the Bible by Paul is when he writes to that church in Corinth that has so many issues. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes. They are yes in Christ Jesus. And you think about the life that you and I live, especially those of us who have been around for a couple of decades, and we have seen the long parade of durable, eternal blessings that have come into our life on a daily basis. Knowing that our hearts are being renovated to be like the good trees with good hearts bearing good fruit that Jesus spoke of. 
We become like those trees where our taproot is sunk into the rock that is Christ Jesus. Our mat of roots clutching the acres of grace wherever we go. And out of our heart come cadences of grateful honesty and truthfulness as a reflection of the God that we serve and the God that saved us and the God that we will spend eternity with. Not a song and dance comes out of our mouth. Nor spin or truthiness. No pressure, no manipulation out of our mouth spills simple and true yeses and noes rooted in a heart that is renovated by the gospel of God. That is who we are as salt and light in this community where people are trying to differentiate between truth and untruth and not just in the insignificant, minimal areas of life but in the most important parts of life. There needs to be the representatives of the kingdom of God who speak the truth in love and whose lives back it up. And whose lives back it up. And that is one of the ways that we love God and we love people and we make a difference in the world in order to change it. Let's stand and sing. We'll